Before we begin, let me let you guys know that if any moms need breast milk, Madeline Belmore, will you raise your hand, Madeline? Hi, Madeline. Uh, has a friend and herself who have a lot and is willing to donate to those who have need. So see Madeline afterwards. Thank you, sister. Yeah, amen. Have you ever realized that you had something really good, but for the longest time you didn't realize you had that very good thing? One day it dawned on you that for all that time, whether it was a week, a day, or a decade, it dawned on you that you had something really good, and you just didn't know it. Married to Susie, I have that realization every morning. You'll have to tell her I said that, though, because she's not in here. Okay, so I trust you'll let her know. In August of 2018, Laura Young bought a 52-pound marble bust at a Goodwill store in Austin, Texas. Y'all may have seen this story in the news. She said it looked interesting, so she bought it. She paid 35 bucks for it, went home, started researching what it was. Turns out that it was a 2,000-year-old bust of Sextus Pompey, a Roman military leader. It was from Germany, but during the war, World War II, it was placed in storage to keep it safe. And then after the war, as happened with so much of European art, it was stolen, probably stolen by American, an American and brought to America because it ended up in Austin, Texas, in a goodwill. There are lots of treasures at Goodwill, by the way. I'm serious. Books? Like, have you ever shopped their book section? You can get like four books for a dollar. Good stuff, too. Anyways, you never know what kind of treasures you're going to find at Goodwill. For Laura Young, it was 35 bucks and a 2,000-year-old piece of history from antiquity. In a much more profound way, though, right now, at this moment, all of us here today, and all people around the world possess something really good, even if perhaps we don't realize it. The fact that any of us are alive and that the world is still running is a gift from God, whether you believe that or not, whether you've thought about that much recently or not. If your heart is beating this morning, raise your hand if your heart is beating. <laughs> the rest of you see a doctor. If your heart is beating and you're breathing, that is God's good gift to you. Especially, here's the main point for where I want to go this morning. Especially if you don't yet know God. If you haven't yet repented of your sins and embraced Jesus Christ in faith. As we've studied the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we've seen God create a wonderful world. Humans ruin it and spoil it with sin. God decided to wash it clean with a flood of water. Because God is just and because the world was thoroughly corrupt and violent, God sent His judgment, a judgment, by the way, that resulted from His goodness. Many think that God's judgment is because He has a temper or because He's inherently mad all the time. But God's judgment is actually a result of His goodness. Abraham Heschel says it this way, Indifference to evil is itself a great evil. What kind of God would God be if evil just went unpunished? He wouldn't be very good. And so out of His goodness, He floods the earth because of humanity's continual rebellion against Him. And in the flood, God's judgment was comprehensive. Everything and everyone were destroyed, with one exception, of course. Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Noah was loved by God, walked with God, and obeyed God. God chose Noah to build an ark that would save him and his family and the animals when the flood came. And the flood waters of judgment did come, and everything and everyone except those who were on the ark died. And as we saw last week, God doesn't just leave Noah out there to die on the ark. He doesn't leave him floating around. He remembers Noah. He dries out the earth. Just as some of our young men dried out the foyer last night. Thank you, Austin, David, Mason. We had a flood water, <laughs> floodwaters of our own come into the church. Thank you, brothers, for staying late and cleaning that up. The floodwaters came, and then because God remembered Noah... The floodwaters receded so that Noah could get off the boat, so that life could begin again on the earth. Now, as we saw last week, the first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat is worship God. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal, took some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So Noah steps on the dry ground, and his attention immediately goes Godward. The mercy of God created the worship of God. This worship pleased God in the following two verses there, 8, 21 and 22. God promises to never flood the earth again. And in 22, he says, things will return to normal. There'll be day and night, seasons and such. But notice that phrase, 21. Even though God saved Noah, destroyed all life on earth, the middle of 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, the Lord knew that the flood didn't wash away sin from man's heart. His flood had washed away sinners from the earth, but it hadn't washed away sin from man's heart. Yet in mercy, he decides not to judge the earth like that again. He says, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. He decides not to flood the earth like that again, even though he'd be justified in doing so. And this brings us to Genesis 9, our text for this morning. So if you haven't opened your Bible yet, find Genesis chapter 9. The whole chapter will be our text for this morning. In chapter 9, we're going to see Moses, the narrator, fill out more of what God is doing with Noah and the earth post-flood. In this chapter, we're going to see why we all have something really good, even if we don't realize it. If you could summarize, if I could summarize this chapter, I'd do it like this. One sentence to summarize what this chapter is saying. In Genesis 9, God recreates the earth and promises to preserve the earth until he redeems the earth from the sin that still lives on the earth. Did you guys write all that down? I'll say it again. In Genesis 9, God recreates the earth, promises to preserve the earth until he redeems the earth from the sin that still lives on the earth. God recreates the earth, promises to preserve the earth until he redeems the earth from the sin that still lives on the earth. Now the main takeaway, that's the summary, but I think the main takeaway for us this morning from this text is this. God's grace is the only reason any of us are alive and the world is still running. God's grace is the only reason any of us are still alive and the world is still running. Let's divide our text this way and then dive into it. We'll divide the text into three sections, and those three sections will be my three points. Number one, we'll see a new Adam, verses 1 through 7. A new Adam, verses 1 through 7. Number two, we'll see a new old covenant. A new old covenant, verses 8 through 17. A new old covenant, 8 through 17. And thirdly, a new fall, 18 through 29. A new fall, 18 through 29. So a new Adam, new old covenant, new fall. Number one, verses one through seven, a new Adam. Genesis chapter nine, verse one. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. In these verses, we see Noah presented as a new Adam. And also back into chapter 8, there's a few places in chapter 8, then several here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, where Moses, the narrator, starts to draw parallels between the new start with Noah and the first start with Adam, between the new earth that Noah will walk into and the first earth inhabited by Adam. His clear intention is to present Noah as a new Adam. There are at least seven parallels that show us that Moses is up to something specific here in this text. Seven parallels between the new world of Noah and the first world of Adam. Here they are. I'll go through them quickly. Number one, God's initial work of creation took place when the earth was covered with water. Genesis 1-2. After the flood, a new beginning takes place when floodwaters recede. Second parallel, God created birds, creeping things, and animals to multiply on the earth. That's Genesis 1, 20-21, 24-25. But then after the flood, these creeping things, birds, animals, begin to multiply on the earth again. That's chapter 8, verse 17-19. through 19. Third parallel, God created the sun and the moon to divide the day and the night to establish the seasons of the year. That's chapter 1, 14-18. Then after the flood, God promises that these patterns will continue. Chapter 8, verse 22. Fourth parallel. God blessed Adam and Eve, told them to multiply and fill the earth. Chapter 1, verse 28. After the flood, God reissues this command to Noah and his family. We saw this here in chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then he says it again in verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply it. Those are the exact same words that God told Adam in 128. Fifth parallel. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. That's 126, 128, 215. After the flood, God reinstates Noah's rule and says that all creatures are under the rule of humans. This is chapter 9, verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are Delivered. That to me sounds a lot like 1, 26 and 28. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the fourth parallel. Fifth parallel. God gave Adam and Eve. Excuse me, that was number five, wasn't it? Um, sixth parallel. God created, excuse me, God provided food for humans. That's 129. He provided the trees and the vegetation, the fruits of the garden for food. Then after the flood, God's provision of food is reiterated, though it now includes animals. This is chapter 9, verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Number seven, the seventh parallel, perhaps the most obvious or most important God made humans in His image, 126. Let us make man in our own image and in our own likeness, after our own likeness. And then after the flood, we learn that humans retain God's image despite sin. Chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. It's 
grace that this verse is in the Bible because it tells us emphatically, clearly, without debate, that despite sin in our hearts, we are still image bearers of God. Praise the Lord. Now, verse 5 is the foundation of human government. You might notice there in verse 5 it says, I will require it from man, meaning it's lifeblood. Verse 5 is thought to be the foundation of all human government because God tells Noah that man will be responsible to enforce justice and righteousness on the earth. Verse 6 then goes on to provide biblical warrant for governments, human governments, to use the death penalty. And I'm not going to do a sidebar on what we should think about the death penalty. I'll be happy to answer questions after the service if you'd like. But there is biblical warrant for it here in this text. But while that verse gets a lot of the press, I think verse 5 is even more fundamental for us. God told man to enforce his justice on the earth. Government is not inherently evil. I know a lot of you don't like our government and wish it was different. And there are lots of things that we wish were different. But government is, according to Peter later and Paul later in the New Testament, is a gift from God to promote righteousness and punish wickedness. So as you think about government, make sure you have a category in your brain for government as a gift from God. Just think if this were all a free-for-all. The world would be chaotic and dangerous and scary. This is why in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, Pray for all those in authority over you, kings, rulers, all those, everyone in authority over you. Pray for them. Why? So that we can live peaceful and godly lives in this generation. That's why in our pastoral prayers, Jared just did, we pray every single Sunday. And you should pray as often as possible for all those in authority over us. Because government is a good gift to us for our good. Now, as I've tried to show quickly, these seven parallels are Moses' way of showing us that Noah is supposed to be seen as a new Adam. Noah is a new Adam. The major difference, of course, is that Noah stepped into a fallen world with sin, sin in his heart. Adam, of course, stepped into a perfect world with no sin. So it's not completely the same. But this begs the question, why? Why does the Lord make it clear to us that the world, the world of Noah is so much like the world of Adam? Why is Moses doing this? Why is the world of Noah so much like the world of Adam? Here's why. Because even though he just destroyed everyone and everything with a flood, he wants to make it emphatically clear that he still cares for the earth and its inhabitants. Can you imagine what Noah and his family felt as they literally saw everything get destroyed? But here Moses is making sure we understand that though the earth was destroyed, God's care for it and its inhabitants hasn't changed. That God would remake the world after the flood with all of its original elements, its original rhythms, its original blessings still in place despite sin is a sign of God's grace. You see, God's judgment doesn't cancel His love. It reveals His goodness, as I said. He is good, so he must punish sin and sinners. But his goodness also means that he doesn't quickly give up on sinners. Noah's world shows us that God still cares for the earth, still cares for his image bearers, even though their hearts are still sinful, and even though they still do sinful things, as we'll see at the end of the chapter. This passage is meant to show us, I think, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. So Noah is a new Adam. That's number one. Number two, we see a new old covenant. A new old covenant. Verses 8 through 17. These verses are going to reveal, further reveal for us God's care 
for His earth and His people. So verses 8 through 17, a new old covenant. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So this covenant, covenant, the word covenant is used seven times in those ten verses. So this is clearly the point of what this section is about. What, what's up with this covenant? Well, this covenant, as I said, is further evidence that Moses, the narrator, wants us to understand Noah as a new Adam. What do I mean? Well, notice the language the Lord uses. He says that he's establishing his covenant with Noah. Do you see that in verse 9? I establish my covenant with you. Then verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. This is exactly what he told us he would do in chapter 6, verse 18. Chapter 6, 18, I will establish my covenant with you, he told Noah before the flood. In Old Testament times, when a covenant was made between two parties, it was called cutting a covenant. You would cut a covenant. And what that means is we'll see in Genesis chapter 15, it referred to the cutting in half of, two, of, of an animal, making two halves. And then the parties would walk through it, symbolizing that if they break the covenant, may they become like these animals. So when you cut a covenant, you literally cut an animal, walk through them. We're going to see that in Genesis 15. That was when you first made a covenant. And it's a different Hebrew word than the one used here for establishing. So what does it mean when the text says repeatedly that God is establishing a covenant with Noah? Not cutting, but establishing. Well, establishing was used, this word establishing was used, when an existing covenant is referred back to so that it, its terms are remembered and upheld. It was like saying... Hey, that covenant we have, remember the terms? Let's affirm it, reaffirm it, uphold it, remember it, keep doing it. We're going to establish it, not by creating it, but by reaffirming it. So when the Lord says here that He's establishing a covenant with Noah, it means that a covenant has already been made. But with who? With Adam. And we talked about this in the sermon I did on Genesis 2, 4-7. through 7. You can... Search that on our church website, Genesis 2, 4 through 7. I showed you several reasons why there's good reason to believe that God at creation entered into a covenantal relationship with Adam. So this covenant in chapter 9 is a new covenant for Noah, but it's an old covenant because it started with Adam. It's a new old covenant. God is renewing what he started with Adam. Now, the nature of this covenant is verses 8 through 11. Then the sign of the covenant is 12 through 17. Let's take those one at a time. What is this covenant even about? Well, verses 8 through 11 show us that the nature of the covenant is that everyone and everything on the earth will be spared by a flood or from a flood until the end of time. So look at 9 and 10 again. Verse 9, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you as many as came out of the ark. It is for every 
beast of the earth. So who's the covenant for? The covenant's for everyone and everything. We often call it the covenant with Noah, but it really could be called God's covenant with creation. This is so important to God that he repeats it two more times down in six, uh, 16 and 17. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. Remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So it's unambiguous who this covenant is between. It's between God and everything and everyone. Not just God and Noah. So it's a covenant with all creation, like the covenant God made with Adam was back in Genesis 1 and 2. But what is this covenant supposed to do? Like what is God trying to accomplish here with this renewal of the covenant made at creation? Well, verse 11 makes the purpose clear. Verse 11 says, I establish my covenant with you so that, here's the purpose, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there, shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So what's the purpose or the promise of this covenant? It's that God will never again destroy the earth by a flood. It's a covenant of preservation. By promising to never flood the earth again, God was pledging that humans will be preserved on the earth until the end of history. You're like, John, okay, uh, that seems kind of interesting, but this has massive implications for us. This means that nothing will destroy the earth until the end of time. Earthquakes, hurricanes, climate change, pandemics, wars, fires, floods, freezes, whatever calamity you can come up with. And a lot of us live in fear, frankly, that things are getting so bad that we just think the earth is unstable. But it's not. It's going to continue. The earth will continue until God says enough. He will preserve the earth. Even though things get worse and maybe even worse and worse, depending on your eschatology, the earth will be preserved. The earth will be preserved against all cataclysmic events until the end. This covenant, by the way, doesn't guarantee universal salvation. He's not saying that everyone's going to be saved in the end. It's guaranteeing universal preservation. The earth will persist until the end. That's why we're here this morning. Do you understand that? This covenant is why we're here while you're alive, while the earth hasn't ended. Now let's look at the sign, though. The sign of the covenant, 12 through 17. I won't read those verses again, but notice verse 13. I've set my bow in the cloud. Of course, this is referring to a, a rainbow, a rainbow. The bow in the cloud is meant to remind God and man of God's promise to preserve the earth. And not because he'll forget, but as an ongoing testimony to God's faithfulness to his covenant promise. As an ongoing testimony that God will do what he says he will do in this covenant. This is also the function of the signs of the new covenant. Who can blurt out the signs of the new covenant? The signs of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper, good job, extra points. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those in the new covenant, remember God's faithfulness as we are baptized and practice the Lord's Supper. These signs remind us that God will be faithful to those who've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised again to walk in newness of life. They remind us that God will be faithful to everyone who continues to feast on Jesus' broken body and shed blood. Signs are meant to remind us of faithfulness. Not ours, but God's. The sign of the bow here is also, by the way, everlasting. Verse 16. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
This means that the covenant with Noah, the covenant with creation, is not temporary. This covenant won't be withdrawn. This covenant won't be revoked. This covenant is still in effect today. Scripture never says that this covenant has been annulled. Think of it. Have you ever seen a rainbow? Yes. Why? Because the covenant with creation is still in effect. There's lots of things we can think and we should think when we see the rainbow. One of them, of course, it's a bow. And in these terms, a bow was like a bow and arrow, a weapon of war. Not just a semicircle. But the rainbow, of course, has a bow pointed up. It's as if God has laid his weapons of war down. Signaling that he won't wipe out humanity again. If he did unleash his bow again on the earth, we'd all die. So we remember the bow as a, as a, a weapon of war that's been laid down. We also look at a rainbow, maybe more significantly perhaps, we see it as something beautiful. Have you ever been driving and you're like, there's a rainbow? You know, you're, like, you know, you're trying to look. You just want to keep looking. Why? Because they're stunning. Have you ever seen the double rainbow? It's like God really trying to remind us. Pay attention, people, but to keep your eyes on the road, too, you know. The beauty, the majesty, the glory of a rainbow set against the backdrop of the gloom of storm clouds is meant to remind us of God's mercy triumphing over His judgment. Rainbows, remember, only exist when sun and storm collide. And mercy wins. Mercy and judgment collided in the flood. Later they're going to collide on Jesus as He hung under God's bow on the cross for sin and sinners. And through that, God shows us the glory and the beauty of His mercy for everyone who has eyes to see. Why was this covenant needed? Why did God need to renew this covenant with Noah? The reason is because if there's no world and no people, there can be no redemption. This covenant with Noah isn't redemptive in and of itself, but it means that the world will continue until God's purposes of redemption are achieved. God has promised that the world will continue until the return of Jesus Christ. This means that God's creation of the earth and human beings won't end up being a failed experiment. Life on earth will persist until the full number of the Gentiles have come in, as Paul says in Romans 11. You might remember Revelation 13 verse 8 says that before creation, God wrote in the book of life the names of all who will be His children. The covenant with Noah, tells us that every single one of those children will come home before the world ends. This is no small thing, brothers and sisters. This means that life on planet Earth is more precious than we realize. History and humans will be preserved on the earth until the end of history because God's plan to rescue His people from the seed of the serpent hasn't ended. This covenant then creates a stage on the earth where God will begin and continue to work out His plan to rescue the world. This covenant means that the world is not going to implode or go crazy until God's work on it is done. There will be stability and order and life until all of God's people come to faith in Jesus. Creation will continue until redemption is complete. If you're alive this morning, and if the world is still functioning, it's because of God's mercy. It's because He still wants sinners to come home. Friends, if you're with us this morning, you're not yet following Jesus. Maybe you're interested in Jesus but you're not sure about trusting Him. You're not sure about following Him. And what I'm saying means that if you're alive, God hasn't given up on you. 
I know he feels distant. It seems hard to believe his word. You wonder how he can be good if so much bad is happening. But if you're alive, you can wrestle with these things knowing that he's not done with you, that he loves you, that he created you, that he's sustaining your life. He wants to give you mercy instead of judgment. He can handle your questions. He can handle your fears and doubts and complaints and tears. He'll hear you and see you and walk with you while you figure things out. If you're alive this morning, it means that God has been merciful to you, friend. It means that God wants to know you. That God wants to know you. We all long to be known by someone, don't we? Those great prophets from the 1990s, the Goo Goo Dolls, said it like this in their 1998 song, Iris. And yes, the 90s were the greatest decade of music, okay? No, no debate. So here's what they say in one of their songs, a song called Iris. I'd give up forever to touch you because I know that you feel me somehow. You're the closest to heaven that I'll ever be. And I don't want to go home right now. You can't fight the tears that ain't coming or the moment of truth in your lies. When everything feels like the movies and you bleed just to know you're alive. And I don't want the world to see me because I don't think that they'd understand. When everything's made to be broken, I just want you to know who I am. I just want you to know who I am. I just want you to know who I am. I just want you to know who, our, who I am. What if our deep desire for connection reveals that we were made by God to know God and be known by God? Friends, there is someone in the universe who sees you, understands you, who gave up glory to rescue you, who bled for your life. We bleed to know that we're alive. We suffer and even sometimes inflict suffering on ourselves just to feel something of life. But the cross says that the giver of life bled for us so that we would have life. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that God wants to know us. He created us. He wants to redeem and rescue us from our sins. Friends, your life is God's gift to you so that you can know Him. He wants to be known. The Bible even says that God made us that we should seek God in the hope that we might feel our way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually Far from each one of us. In other words, friends, life, life is about knowing God now before you see Him face to face later. This is why Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. Does that summarize your life, Christian? To live is Christ, that I might know Him, Paul says in Philippians 3. So if you don't yet know God, friends, know this. God created you, but your sin has separated you from Him. Your sin deserves the judgment of God. But in mercy, the Father sends the Son to die on a cross, to take away your sin, to take away your judgment, to bring you back into the arms of God. So everyone who confesses their sin to God, believes that Jesus died for their sin, will be ushered back into the arms of the God who created them. God wants to know. God wants you to know how big and strong and safe and good and, and true He is. But friends, Jesus is where you have to go to learn this. You have to go to Him. You have to go to Him. You have to confess that you can't do it in and of yourself. You have to go to Him. If you're alive, God is preserving your life because He loves you. In this sense, life is a beautiful mercy from God. So we've seen a new and old covenant. 
a new and old covenant. That was number two. Number three, a new fall. A new fall. Verses 18 through 29, a new fall. Genesis 9, 18, the sons of Noah who went out, who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. From these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This section continues to mirror the opening chapters of Genesis. Opening chapters of Genesis. We see here a vineyard that reminds us of the garden. We see Noah sinning by taking fruit of the vine. There's nakedness and shame. There's a covering for nakedness. And then there are curses and blessings. All of this is a repeat of the fall narrative from Genesis 3. Noah, like Adam, was in a garden and sinned in a garden, resulting in curses and blessings. Now many have wondered what exactly the sin of Ham was. None of us would prefer to see the nakedness of our parents, but why is that sinful? Right? Look at verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then verse 25, 6 and 7, that leads to a cursing of his son, his descendants. The blessing of his two brothers. So what exactly did Ham do that was so bad? The best way to, to determine this is to notice what his brothers do in response to seeing their father's nakedness. So we have to contrast what Ham does and what Shem and Japheth do. Shem and Japheth turn away from their father's nakedness rather than looking at it. They cover it rather than report it. Ham looks, doesn't cover, and reports. So the root issue is that Ham doesn't honor his father. Shem and Japheth cover their father's shame and thus honor him. You'll learn later as you continue reading the Old Testament, Moses will say in the Ten Commandments that those who honor their parents will inherit life and blessing. So dishonoring your parents is a grave offense. This doesn't, however, cancel the need for honesty. Isn't it instructive that the first recorded sin after the flood is of Noah doing something incredibly stupid? Uh, of Noah abusing a good thing Becoming drunk, lying naked in his tent. No doubt, Ham dishonored his father. But his father was so drunk that he took off all his clothes and passed out. Point is, both parties are responsible for what happened here. As we relate to those in our family and friends, it's important to remember that honor does not cancel honesty. Sometimes we think that honor means we never say what is true. 
sometimes we think honesty means that we must be a jerk about what is true. So we have to have both. We honor and we're honest. Like the first Adam, the second Adam, Noah, is a gardener whose sin resulted in shameful nakedness. The new beginning with Noah is starting to look like the first beginning with Adam. God promised to preserve the world, but the world was no longer paradise. Noah's family has all the problems of Adam's family and, of course, our own families. And at some point, don't we all become cynical about what's happening in the world? I see a few of you honest ones nodding your head. (laughs) We all become cynical and skeptical about what's happening. We become disgusted with sin and broken over suffering. Because we can't seem to change anything, sometimes we just assume that, well, things are so bad, we're basically doomed, so I'm just going to retreat into my little enclave and do nothing and pray that the Lord comes quickly. Some, though, are more idealistic. The more idealistic ones among us suggest that, hey, we can do this. We can start over. We can do better. We can make the world a new place, a better place. We can wipe the slate of history clear and begin again. Elon Musk promises colonies on other planets. You need to read the news with theological categories in mind. What does that mean? He's so intent on getting us to Mars. What's he running from? What are you running from? As if the human heart would change on that rocket ride to Mars. Of course, many others of us, we look to science or medicine as they promise to extend the quality or quantity of our lives. Many of us love education. Sometimes we love it so much that we think it will eradicate all ignorance and injustice in the earth. If people just knew the right things, the world would be a better place. And in a sense, that's true. Religious religious groups and other groups hope to make the world a better place through humanitarian, humanitarian efforts But what we have to do is remember this story, that there was a time when God created everything, excuse me, when God started everything over, and then nothing actually fundamentally changed. Noah gets off the ark, and his heart is still bent on twisting good things, making them or abusing them so that he's sinning, and there's shame, and there's dishonor, And the family begins to experience what Adam's family experienced. Shame and dishonor worked their way through Noah's family. And interesting that this is, uh, this whole chapter ends with this, verse 29. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. The ark didn't cancel the, the, the curse of death over Noah's life. He died. So did his sons and his daughters and his wife. So what are we supposed to think about this? Are we supposed to just retreat completely? Are we supposed to give our our time and our money to, to just making the world a better place? Well, there's a way in which both of those could be good options in certain cases. I'm not here to defend a certain position on how we should engage culture. What I am here to say is that God will preserve the earth until Jesus Christ returns. In the meantime, the thing we must do, as we saw a couple weeks ago, we must stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. He's coming back. His lightning's going to flash across the sky. We should be prayerfully ready. We should be hoping and expecting and longing for that day. Our lives should reflect that we are living for something else. Whether it's the way we're managing our time, our money, our attendance in church, the love of our neighbors, the love of the lost people we know in our lives, our prayer life, our devotional life, 
Everything is shaped by this reality that, that Christ will come again. We will see him face to face and all earth, all time, all of history will end. We need to run to refuge, run for refuge to Jesus. Run and keep running to him. So in Genesis 9, we've seen a new Adam, a new old covenant, a new fall. After the flood, God recreates the earth, promises to preserve the earth until he redeems the earth from the sin that still lives on the earth. Like Noah, we possess something really good, perhaps without even knowing it. The fact that any of us are alive and that the world is still running is a gift from God. If our heart is beating, that is God's good gift to you, especially if you don't yet know him. So, friends, when you wonder why you're still alive, the reason is because of God's mercy and faithfulness to his covenant with Noah. You're alive because God is faithful to his word. You're alive because, because God loves you and wants to know you. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to grab me in the foyer, grab the friends you came with, ask your questions. God literally wants to know you. He can be known. And the fact that you're alive today should tell you that. Your life, friends, is a beautiful gift of mercy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take your word and help us by your spirit to apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, accompany your word. Help it to find good soil. Water it. Grow it. Cause it to bear much fruit. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your son who is our refuge. Thank you for the promises of the new covenant that tell us that we will not be consumed by the floodwaters of your judgment at the end of time. We will be ushered safely into a new heavens and new earth. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to remember that our very life, our breath today is evidence of your mercy. Maybe that means praying with our families or our roommates, just praying, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the mercy of this day. Lead us to be a grateful people. Lead us to be a humble people, knowing that we need you, that sin still plagues our hearts. Like Noah, who was declared righteous, but also still struggled with sin. Help us to be honest about these things. Help us to reach out for help when we need it. Help us to all continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.